Hello everyone, I'm Jo. And I'm Melissa. And this is a podcast where we chat to people who practice Nichiren Buddhism within the SGI. We're not official spokespeople. These are just informal chats about what Buddhism is and why chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo works. Welcome to Buddhist Chats. Is the audience in yet? Have we got a big house tonight? Are they all there? <laughs> Sorry, love. They're all there. He's, he's appalling if there's no audience. Yeah, I'm reversed. Yeah, he comes alive in front of 3,000 people. Yes, that's right. Okay. Right. Crack on them. Crack on them, Melissa. Okay, I'm just going to launch into it. This week, our guest is author Paul Bassett Davis. He's written novels, stories, and film scripts. And he's had a long career as a comedy writer for radio, film and TV. He also practices Nichiren Buddhism, which is why he's here. Welcome to Buddhist Chats, Paul. Hello. 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 So um, we normally start with, um, with the old classic question, which is, why do you practice Nichiren Buddhism? How did you meet the practice? Okay. I'll answer the second question first. Okay. I met the practice at an eco-festival in Brockwell Park in South London. Um, I was there with my son, who's always been an eco-warrior. He's now 25, but um, this was about 15 years ago. Yeah, nearly 12, 13 years ago, maybe. And I've always been um, quite cerebral and very proud of the fact that I can think my way into and out of everything. I had been, but at that point in my life I was not in a crisis because I'd kind of come to terms with things but I was facing very major surgery which was meant to be the last of a series of surgeries that I'd been going through um, for the previous seven years having been diagnosed with a chronic illness around about 2000-ish I it then got worse and I had to have going in and out I spent a lot spent much more time seeing the insides of hospitals than I would have liked to but I'd come to terms with the fact that I was going to have this major operation. And I was wandering around Brockwell Park with my son, and I heard the sound of chanting coming from a tent. And for some reason, I was just viscerally drawn to towards it. And as I say, this is very unlikely, because I've always been such a, a sort of you know, proud intellectual, as it were, but this was completely visceral. I just went and, and stood in the doorway of this tent, and it turned out it was a lot of people from the South London Buddhist Centre chanting away. Namioringiko, they were chanting. And I really loved it. I just something about it just just absolutely clicked with me. So I listened for a few minutes, then I went off with my son to go and see something. And I, and while I was doing that, I said to him, Look, I'm gonna go back to that tent. And he said, Okay, I'll come with you. So we went back and I actually joined in with no idea of what was being done. I had no idea of what, what, what it was at all. But I, but someone at the door of the tent said, oh, come in, join in. I said, all right, so I did. And I spent about five minutes chanting, and then they finished. And then I said, okay, so what have I been doing? And uh, this person said, you've been chanting. Nam um, Rengeko. And I said, and, and what's, what am I chanting? What's that all about? He said, well, you're chanting for wisdom, compassion, and courage. I thought, that'll do me. <laughs> you can't say fairer than that. And and it was those words, just those three words, and the amazing vibe that I got from the, the chanting in the tent. 
that then I said to someone, well, can I find out? And they said, look, would you like to find out more? I said, yeah. I said, look, here's a card. Here's the name of someone who's a man from your, in, lives near you, who turned out to be a guy called Angelo, who's a wonderful guy from South London district, uh, one of the district, Tooting, I think it was, which is where I was living at the time. I got in touch with him and had a chat and uh, spent a, quite a f- first few days when I, I realized I was, com- I was chanting away in my home and doing it completely wrong. But then I kind of found out I was kind of putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, as it were. <laughs> I think that I eventually got into the rhythm. I realized what it was, the rhythm of it. And, and I started and I chanted. And then I don't make a huge deal of the fact that it changed it, a, a, an outcome, but it may have changed an outcome. And I know a lot of people when they first meet the practice report some quite dramatic changes and events. And, and for me, it was that I went into this to, to hospital to have this surgery. And as I say, I'd sort of in my own mind, or I thought I'd, I'd pretty much come to terms with the fact that it was going to be a very major operation that sort of was, was fairly conclusive, if you like, because I had various bits of me removed, bits of my insides taken out over the years. And uh, when I came round from this quite long operation, the wonderful consultant said to me, he said, well, that was interesting, wasn't it? I said, I had no idea, was it? I was asleep, mate. I was off with the fairies for six hours. And he said, well, um, when I opened you up, you weren't quite as bad as I thought. You were in slightly better nick than I thought you'd be. It was slightly better shape yeah. than you. So I thought I'd just see whether I could not do the really radical surgery, do a less much less radical surgery. Yeah. And he said, I hope, I hope we've done the right thing, Paul. And I said, what do you mean we? You were the one with the, with the, with the sharp knife, mate. I was the one who was off with the fairies. Um, and it was, but it was, you know, I thought that was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And as I say, it was all taking place on a level that, that I've always had a, uh, I suppose, you know, we all know that we are, the reason we are here following this practice is because we have always been seeking spirits. So I have always been a seeking spirit, but I had no idea that I would end up meeting this practice, practicing this Buddhism and having, and it having such a profound impact on me from the get go with a quite dramatic outcome. As I say, after only two weeks, I think it was of chanting Mm. and, and I, and I, that's so yeah, nearly 14 years ago, I think that was. um, And I haven't looked back since then because I've found that it's just been a fantastic transformative influence on everything about my life and my everything to do with it really and my way of thinking and the way i the way i move through the world Mm. so there's the answer to that (laughs) i think you answered the second part of the question as well uh, or you started to although although they can can endlessly enlarge on that they're they're interconnected aren't they um yeah it's so interesting that it was the chanting that got you in it. We've come across that before, but for me, it was sort of almost despite the chanting. Right. Like, I, I sort of love So similarly, I have this idea of myself as somebody who can read her way out of every situation and I'm generally very cerebral or, you know, like to think I am. And I wanted to, I was very attracted to Buddhism in general. And I'd always been fascinated ever since I saw it. You know, my grandpa had a book about it and I remember loving that for so just looking at it and, wondering what that was all about. And um, when I first encountered this Buddhism, it was largely because I found the people I met who practiced it so charismatic and funny and generally ace. I just thought, they seem like fun. They're having a good time. I want to do whatever they do. I'll have what she's having kind of thing. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And then 
and I wanted a, you know, desperately wanted a practice that felt like a compass. So I'm now talking about myself more, but I remember finding the actual chance. I borrowed lots of books and I loved everything they said. And I thought, yep, yeah, tick, tick, tick. This is absolutely what I believe. But the chanting, I was faintly, well, actually very embarrassed about. I sort of did it secretly in the shower for a while. Um, and the chanting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So, um, we're, we're, sorry. We're all friends here. <laughs> Somebody had to say it. Yeah, well. So, yes, as well as that. I was chanting very quietly and surreptitiously and tentatively, but amazingly, it still worked. Yeah. I still definitely felt the benefits. You know, I, I sort of lost that me against them feeling that I'd been dogged by. But um, so did you did you immediately sort of make that connection when you came round and thought, well, they didn't have to hack away at me like they thought they did? Yeah. Did you did you feel like that's because of the chanting? Yes, I did. And I, I'm, I try not to, I know what I think about it and feel about it. I never make a massive claim for unequivocal miracles, but I do know in my, in my own heart what changed uh, and what made the difference. And it was the chanting. Yeah. And it was, it was the chanting before I knew, I, don't think I, I hardly knew anything about the practice and the, certainly didn't know anything about the background and the history I just knew that I was chanting for those wisdom, compassion and courage for the happiness of myself and others because those two things were interdependent and um, off mm. I went. And did you get sort of stuck into the organisation quickly or were you just sort of chanting? Cause I, I was super sceptical about being involved in a thing. Yeah. I was quite happy to chant, but I didn't, yeah. I didn't want to be in a kind of, yeah. No, I was, I'm, I was quite reluctant. But um, for some reason, it was it just seemed to happen. I didn't seem to have much choice in the matter, although obviously I did. Yeah. <laughs> Before I knew it, I was men's district leader of Tooting Gravney. Um, yeah. So obviously required. Uh, I filled a filled a, 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 a gap shaped for me, um, and I didn't. I, I actually liked. It's, it's. I've always felt about like a lot of people about meetings. The, the our meetings, our Buddhist meetings, our SGI meetings. It's like going swimming. You think, oh, can I really be bothered to get undressed and get cold and get wet and then get dry and then get dressed <laughs> and then get cold and get home? And after you do it, you think, why don't I do this every day? It's fantastic. And it's the same thing, really. The, the kind of the idea of talking to people and meetings and all of that kind of thing is not appealing. And of course, every time you attend a meeting, invariably you, you leave elevated and transformed and, and renewed with renewed good feeling about life in general and other people in general. So it's a great thing for me to, it, it, that's part of what appeals to me as well in a funny way is the discipline of getting up every day and chanting in the morning and the evening and knowing that I will go to a meeting at, at some point in the month, probably more than once, and I will talk to other people about the practice, and I will talk to people outside the practice about the practice. And that's, a, you know, maybe it was because I had every structure in my life before then except the structure for, for, for a spiritual practice, for a Buddhist practice. And then when that arrived, that felt like exactly the structure and the discipline that I needed and wanted. Mm. Uh, so that's that's right for me. And has it had any impact on your work? 
because there's there's a lot of creative people practicing. We kind of vaguely touched the other day when we were chatting. When all three of us are kind of interested in the sort of space between comedy and value creation, and that you're you know part of your work is as a satirist. Yeah, it has it has been some of it. I've done a lot of comedy writing and performing actually, but not exclusively. Um, no, the last novel I wrote published was it was an absolutely straight ahead thriller right. without much comedy in it just to just because I fancied doing that do you find that sometimes you'll you ever think of the art that you're making from a buddhist perspective and think oh, I'm going to pull back on that because it's a bit too salty as Melissa <laughs> sometimes says or do you find that it's had a kind of effect on yeah has it changed the way you work or or the content of your work not consciously as I work, although in retrospect, sometimes I see things that appear to have been influenced by Buddhist philosophy or more broadly humanist, I think. And even before I, I met the practice, there was a kind of a, I was edging my way towards a kind of humanism that, that seemed to, and this is what other people have said mostly, is um, a kind of a humanism in my work even when it's completely at its most when the comedy is at its most extreme there is still a a sense of humanism in it and yes I I have done you know I've worked for many years I worked as a you know writing topical satire and I work with a lot of the the, you know from way back in several years ago some quite big names in British comedy I wrote for them and with them and some of that is is satirical, which means and and you've got to have satire has a target, um, and you've got to have the stomach for it. And there's a phrase we use, which you've probably heard among comedy writers and performers in general, about punching up, which is you don't. There's no point in making fun of people who are already having a terrible time. Um, but it does satire, particularly topical satire, political satire. You are in a sense attacking somebody or something and even if you're attacking an idea like the hypocrisy of the the press you're still kind of putting a face to it and sometimes you are satirizing an individual and the purpose of one of the purposes of satire is to uh, mock the arrogance of the powerful and to to puncture the pretensions of the of the pompous to bring people down to earth. If you wanted to be kind of grand about it, you could say it's a way of speaking truth to power. Or when it works well, it's a way of speaking truth to power. And I'll carry on, if I may, actually, because since we talked about this, joke, I was thinking about, am I, is, is there a viciousness um, to that kind of satirical, uh, making satirical jokes? There's, is, there, is there an edge of cruelty? And in some ways there is, I think, and it's unavoidable. But I, I, I kind of would like to retrofit it as, uh, as, <laughs> as being fighting for justice and truth. <laughs> so I think of, the, think of the funny joke and the cruel mocking quip and then somehow retrospectively justified as being standing up. Give him, give him a hug afterwards. Uh, no, I wouldn't go that, to that, but I'd give, my, I, I'd give myself a hug afterwards by saying, yeah. you're doing the right thing, Paul, by, yes. by being a noble crusader for, for justice. Yeah. And I'm only half joking and half serious about that because that is what we are, we are encouraged to do by sensei and by other and some of the mm. aspects of the practice. We are encouraged to stand up 
and fight. Yeah, and there, that's true. there is a time to stand and fight. And there are no shortage of opportunities around us in the world today that are challenges to stand and fight and tell the truth and not give way and fight and struggle to win a lot of battles that are going on. And then I, just to, to round this off, I, I was thinking after we spoke, Joe, about writers that I admire or have admired. And I tried to think of the, and, and I found myself thinking about P.G. Woodhouse who was a, a master of English prose and one of the funniest, in my opinion, in the opinion of lots and lots of other people, one of the funniest, if not the funniest writer in, in the English language in the last two or 300 years. And he's in good company with Dickens or Jane Austen or people like that. But Woodhouse himself just has a sort of an innocence and a playfulness. And like all geniuses, he makes it look easy, the, all the hard work, wrote lots and lots of books, and of course created those uh, Bertie Wooster and Jeeves, uh, Jeeves and Wooster books. And I was remembering how, what a gentle and, and, and almost unworldly and innocent figure he was, Woodhouse. So everyone who met him said he was this, just this kind of woolly chap who liked golf and liked his dogs. And, but of course he was, he was an absolute literary master. And in the 1930s, in a few of his novels, in the Jeeves and Wooster books, he created a character called Sir Roderick Spode. And that character was a direct satire of Sir Oswald Mosley, who was the leader of the British Union of Fascists in the 1930s, who'd modelled himself on Mussolini and, to a lesser extent, Hitler, and was a dangerous and extremely unpleasant man who had a very dangerous following of people who thought that Britain should go the way that Italy under Mussolini and Germany under Hitler had gone. And he set himself up as a kind of strutting uh, leader in that dictatorial fashion with his version of the jackboots and the dark uniform and the semi-quasi militaristic authoritarian fascist apparatus. And Woodhouse was, there's no mistaking, I mean, everyone knew that when he was writing about this buffoon, this idiot called Sir Roderick Spode, he was writing essentially about Oswald Mosley and mocking him. And the mockery was, was more puncturing his foolishness, let's say, than his wickedness. But everyone could make the connection and whatever you thought of Oswald Mosley at that time, you could see that, that Woodhouse, who was the gentlest and most playful of writers, was delivering you a, a very accurate satire. And in fact, it was more effective probably than had he become bitter and, and, and done a real, um, you know, exposing the wickedness and evil of this man just by simply presenting him as a pompous, misguided, self-aggrandizing, narcissistic fool... <laughs> He didn't say, he never, never touched on the idea of, of wickedness and evil and, and the, you know, going to any of the politics, really. He just mocked. He just mocked him because he was a fool. Mm. And that was, it got me reflecting. I don't really know if I could draw a conclusion from that, but simply that, he, I suppose the conclusion is that even Woodhouse, who is, as I say, generally regarded as being gentle and almost childlike in his innocence, but a brilliant, brilliant writer. He wasn't beyond uh, a bit of satire in his writing mm. in a very volatile political situation in 1930s, 1936. 
Yeah, and I just to go back to the point you made about taking action, that's a really key thing that I think a lot of people misunderstand about Buddhism because because it is a humanist philosophy and done correctly, it should be about you know not causing any harm and pacifism and about advancing world peace. I've met people, especially in the early days of me practicing, who would sort of say quite they they'd say disparaging or or just you know slightly um, sort of cynical things about well you can't like everybody because I would say things about just the need like Bodhisattva never disparaging who mm. is a character in the Lotus Sutra yeah. fact fans who as his name would suggest never disparages anybody and goes around bowing to everybody he meets because he recognizes their Buddha nature that is innate within everybody, although it may be very dormant in some people. But where I'm going with this is, you know, whenever I would say to friends, well, it's about respecting everybody that, you know, it's about finding a way to respect everybody you meet or to treasure every person, treasure the person in front of you. And some of my friends would say, yeah, but you can't like everybody. And I was like, you know, it's not about, it's not about loving everybody. It's about realizing that you have to find a way to respect their right to exist and to be very annoying and possibly somebody you would like to never meet again, but to not actually want to annihilate people or, or somehow yeah. correct. And I think I was just about to say correct and actually corrected myself because I think that's another thing that when we're talking about handling differences of opinion and differences of approach, this idea that if you don't, if you, I'm going to misquote this, but if you fail to correct somebody who is behaving badly, you know, who's behaving erroneously, you're not in fact their friend, you're their enemy. And I, I tell myself that all the time, you know, occasionally when a friend is just being mean or self-deceiving or they're behaving in ways that are not value-creating for themselves or anybody else, it does take a lot of courage to have a word with somebody, but you have to yeah. do it. I've sort of gone on off on a different tangent, but it does take courage and it is actually being a proper Buddhist does involve actually being able to square up to yes to fights. I think it's about what's appropriate. I think the humanism at the heart of what we do is so precious that sometimes we have to take steps to protect it. If there is no humanity left, uh, there won't be any humans to be humanistic towards. And there are certain things where you, where you have to take you want to take action in a situation where you think that that is you know, really extreme. But it's interesting because my inclination is to disparage, or always has been, to, to, I've got no problem with disparaging people. And I've always been, <laughs> always been very, very keen. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm, uh, there's nothing I like more than being unfairly judgmental, left, right and centre. I love disparaging people and always have done. And for me, the great challenge. <laughs> um, you make a living from yes, it. I mean, I do, you know. To a certain extent, I have done it. I have made part of my living from it. Well, I'm not always horrible all the time. But um, for me, the great challenge and what, was, what has been so amazing and, and gives me so much kind of moral, spiritual, intellectual fuel is the challenge to sit down and chant for the happiness of people who I detest or even people who annoy me or just anybody really who I just kind of, the idea that I just find that so revolutionary. Mm. It's even more revolutionary, I think, than than I'm. I'm in, you know, I'm a huge fan of Christ. Um, <laughs> who isn't? <laughs> the, 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 the message, the, the message at the heart of the Christian faith of, of forgiving your enemies and things like that is was revolutionary in its time. But this isn't actually just. A, this isn't about forgiving your enemies. This is actually wishing and praying 
for their happiness. And that is because I find that so inimical and it's, been, and it's such a challenge. It for me, but I find it absolutely revolutionary and something that every day can thrust itself up in front of me and remind me of what is so extraordinary about this practice. But going back to the thing you said at the start, which is that when you started chanting, you were kind of promised that the three things that would emerge out of your life were wisdom, courage and compassion. Through chanting and those things emerging out of your life, then any situation in your life, particularly a one of sort of conflict, whether it's with a mate or someone in politics who you mm. profoundly disagree with, you're infusing wisdom, courage and compassion in your writing or in your interaction with that person. So you you know how to, I suppose like I can think of times in my life where a friend has taken me aside to sort of tell me off. And and why it's landed, yeah. and 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 there's been a few times in my life where someone's sort of taken me aside and gone, "I'm really worried about you because of this, and you did this, and it's not good," and and basically sort of explored it with me in a really compassionate way, but properly told mm. me off, but did it in such a way that I could see what I'd done, and then did something about it. It just reached me, and um, I think the more you chant, the better you get at those conversations with you know, your loved ones or your friends, the difficult conversations are not quite so poisonous or volatile. I'm actually the opposite of you, Paul. I hate conflict and I want more courage in my interaction. So I need that part of the wisdom, courage, compassion, triumvirate mm. in my interaction so that I can, yeah, be more truthful rather than fearful. But also I would say what's really, I'm going to use the, the old mystical word, but what is truly mystical about chanting is that I would say even without those discussions, you transform relationships. And it really does, it, it's the heart that something transforms. I mean, when I have chanted for people that I find really difficult, and ch as you say, Paul, you know, chanted for their happiness, like truly thought, I can't stand this person that has it doesn't matter who, but, you know, there's been a couple of relationships that I've transformed purely through chanting for their happiness. I've never had a chat with them about, I've never discussed our differences or sort mm. of um, had it out with them. It just, over time, something changed in my heart. Not to say that in any way, you know, I don't particularly love their company, but I do just now feel that I have, yeah, have some, yeah. have some compassion for them. And I do... I want them to be happy and I sort of feel like because actually that's win-win right like if somebody gets happier then hopefully they're less loathsome that, so that would be the, yeah that would be the ideal <laughs> outcome you know <laughs> unless somebody's loathsome because they're really annoyingly happy um, that, yeah. which might be me yeah. now that I practice but <laughs> you'll have to ask other people so I wanted to ask you actually ages ago when you told us about about when you started practicing and that's something I wanted to this ties in do you find that it has transformed any relationships how did how did the people you were close to respond when you started doing this weird thing and it's it's interesting when you were saying Joe about being a you know avoiding conflict I recognize myself in that as well I don't go looking for fights because I I lose too many of them um it's more that I kind of sit at home like a kind of disgruntled hobbit <laughs> <laughs> thinking horrible things about people and then the, the exercise of having to chant for their happiness transforms things yeah so it, what i've noticed though it's it's more that those conflict relationships 
with other people, I find I can get over it quicker. Things that are negative. It's not so much that I notice that, I, that they are transformed, that I don't have, for example, arguments with people. Um, I find that they're just not quite as, they're not as important. It's, I can let go of them quicker. They don't fill the screen in the way that sometimes before I met the practice, something negative could. And that was my experience of chronic illness. And that's in a way why writing, why I was so, so lucky to be able to have that as a career and a profession. Because when I was really, really chronically undergoing all these horrible things and operations and so on, I was able to create a, a world that I could be in where I wasn't just totally at the effect of being this ill person. It was a way of spending several hours forgetting all about that because in the real world, it was so present and so dominant in my experience that I was able to kind of write a different world to have fun in. That where, where, where and oh, I'd like to read that. Forget. What's the, what book is that? Well, that was my first novel, which was called Utter Folly. And it's about a, an yeah. innocent young man who goes on a country house weekend and has all these illusions about how wonderful the upper classes are, knocked out of him by their foul and terrible behaviour over the course of a long weekend. Um, but it was really just a, somebody who described it as um, Gosford Park on mescaline, <laughs> which is sort of a kind of, if you can imagine, Downton Abbey, but they're all terrible kind of drug fiends and shaggers and awful people. It sounds brilliant. It does sound great. But I put everything, it's, it's a bit too long, it needs an edit, but I, it was, you know, it's out there. And then I became more disciplined with my second novel and sort of treated it as, as something else. But the act of being able to write was a blessing to me because it was able, to, as I say, I was able to create this reality where I wasn't just a sick, ill person, wall not wallowing, but at the effect of my suffering. But that the metaphor I was using for that is I was able for that experience not to fill the screen. And that's what I mean about the transforming conflicts or letting go of them or being able to get over them more quickly is that these things happen, but they are obstacles. And there's a lot, quite a lot in our practice and in other Buddhist writings about what obstacles are and the need to see them for what they are, which is they are just obstacles. They are not this massive, great disaster. Even if they feel disastrous, they are obstacles and they are usable. They have a purpose. They have a, and the first step towards overcoming them or not being dominated by them is to simply see them for what they are. But it's this this metaphor of not allowing these negative things to fill the screen. So it's not this thing that's completely in your way. And I think Buddhism is, or the, this practice, is one of the tools we have been given to be able to see around the side of that, what seems to be an obstacle, a screen that is blocking the view of everything else in your life. Because that's what negative, particularly negative relationships and arguments and things like that, tend to suddenly, they become all pervasive. And that's what life is. It's just this horrible negative thing that you're in, this argument or this conflict or this malfunction or this dysfunction. And to be able to take a step back and look around that and see that there is a mm. whole, that's simply a, a temporary screen that is standing between you and, and the rest of life and the wonderful world we live in. I think that's one of the values of this resource we have, Well, and, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, all, and sort of that and also... When you were talking about the obstacles, I suddenly actually, I can't believe I haven't thought of this metaphor before, but I pictured an obstacle course and thought, actually, obstacle courses are kind of fun and you get muscly from doing them. You know, it's like if you, <laughs> yeah. I was explaining this to, um, 
or check me out, my personal trainer, who I, I'm working with briefly um, to try and get some actual muscles, <laughs> not just spiritual ones. But um, we were having technical problems and I explained Sancho Shima to her, which is this idea that, you know, when obstacles arise, the um, the wise rejoice and, and the foolish retreat. And she looked so delighted by this idea. She just immediately, you know, she was getting quite annoyed that we couldn't get any couldn't get Zoom or Google Meets or anything else to work. And I said, oh, don't worry, it's great. It just means there's something amazing just about to happen because we've got all of these obstacles. And um, she loved this idea. And I, and I said, well, you know, we, we see problems as wonderful things that you use to build strength and that you transform and you use as, as opportunities to grow. And when you were talking, I thought, yeah, like we're just bounding over an obstacle course. We're not, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a nice way of thinking of it, definitely. It's a good way of thinking of it. And it is, yeah, it is, yeah. It is just wonderful to have a thing to do when you're upset about something because I, it, you're right, that awful feeling when you've had a terrible argument with somebody, I remember just sort of not knowing what to do with that feeling and, you know, maybe opening a bottle of wine or whatever, um, nothing wrong with yeah. a glass of wine occasionally, but being able to chant, yeah. having something to do with your energy, with that energy yeah. is wonderful. Yeah, it's an alternative to try to solve it, which is not often that I always tend to think that, that you need to take action. And chanting is a great way to take action. You, it's an action we can all do uh, because it was, it was probably your mind that got you into trouble in the first place. So don't try and think your way out of something that, that was a, a mind problem that was created by your mind in the first place. Leave that alone and can chant sit in front of the gohonzon or just chant or uh, just find a way to as as we're saying to kind of transform our experience of ourselves and that relationship and those other people and also that then the last for some reason it's been coming up a lot in the last year or so and i've really been in the practice in all various things um the idea of the treasure tower that everyone is a treasure tower and everyone's an individual and unique treasure tower but the treasures in a sense are the, the same treasures uh, in a way, the, 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 the fundamental core treasures that we all have. And I don't know, that that's, I've been doing that kind of, uh, I'd always heard that phrase, but for some reason, some of the things we've been doing in the last year or so, some of the things that I've been doing in the last year or so have made it more vivid for me, that idea. So, yeah, thank you, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. That I I do. There are other things I want to ask you about writing specifically, but I'll uh, I'll book in a, a coaching session with you. Or yeah, or yeah. or listen to your podcast. No, the podcasts I think are, are just the podcasts I do. Most of them, the the, the series that, that says it's about writing is actually about it's a sort of spoof writing advice because when I first started it a few years ago, suddenly all of the the internet was full of writers telling other writers how to write and everyone giving each other writing advice and I kind of thought well look if everyone what if somebody was so twisted that what they wanted to do was ensure that other writers didn't succeed by setting themselves up as a writing coach giving extremely bad writing (laughs) advice in the hope that all the other writers would follow it um, and then fail and so there's a kind of I started this thing called the writer type which is my online handle and it was all about yeah it was based on the idea of misleading mm-hmm. writing advice it was bound to get you into trouble if you followed it and it's kind of it kind of morphed from that I've now yeah. used, I've got a, a kind of audio podcast channel that I, I read some of my stories on so I do readings and I've also just done a recorded myself uh, doing an audio book of my most recent my latest novel what's it uh, called Paul it's called 
Stone Heart Deep. Okay. And it's and that's, a gripping that and thriller? chilling thriller. Wow. That's the thriller, yeah. Did you say it was that's a gripping, chilling thriller? It's gripping and chilling oh, and chilling, chipping, chilling, chipping, chipping and grilling. <laughs> <laughs> Some selection of those yeah. those ideas. Brilliant. Yeah, I, it's... Um, yeah, I have to say, I, I listened to those uh, to the the spoof writing advice and absolutely loved them because I'm quite allergic to writing advice. I, I write for a living, but you know, for a, in a corporate way, this is off the record stuff now. Mm. But um, no, no, it doesn't have to be Melissa. Yeah, well, anyway, um, <laughs> I I have aspirations to write more stuff that I would actually like to write. That, but do you know what? I wouldn't. I, you say corporate world. I you know the corporate world was my film school. Because I can say, look, I, I've written nearly 100 short films and they all got made and I got paid for all of them. And that's because they were corporate mm-hmm. films. They were training films or product launches or a, a, a little you know, five-minute video for a pharmaceutical company about some new medical gown and it was going to be seen by 500 doctors, people who wanted a little bit of humour to help deliver very dry company messages. And... I actually found that, that what was going on in the corporate world at that time, this was probably the, I don't know, late 80s, 90s, was more interesting than was what was going on in the comedy world. What was going on in the comedy world was essentially the entertainment business is a fundamentally conservative industry. And so as comedy became really big, and of course there was lots of wonderful stuff, but it was becoming very corporate, becoming very industrial. And I thought, if I'm going to work for an industry, I'll go and work for a proper industry. <laughs> And it's a great training ground mm. uh, to, to write economically. And also it's quantifiable because you know whether you've written a good five-minute corporate film because two months later they'll say, we've had an uptick in sales. Or they'll say, everybody thought that was shit. No, and, and you sort of know. They've got some analytics, and, and yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah, and, it, and it's a great, great, great training ground to, to help you to write economically and concisely. And also the other thing that I learned was that you've got to respect people that you're addressing because you can it's all very well to come into a company and make fun of, of what they do but that's their life those people are doing that five days a week sometimes six days a week going into the office leading that life and you've got to know how you've got to get the permission to take the piss mm-hmm. and it's based on respect so and this was years before I met the practice but in re- again retrofitting it to a certain way mm. to a certain extent I realized that what I was doing was respecting their lives, mm. and that made it gave me the permission to be funny or mocking about certain aspects of corporate life. Mm. But you can't do it just by coming in as an outsider and you know being contemptuous of mm. what eighty percent of those people's lives. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting. As I say, it's things that you realise in retrospect once mm. you start practicing. Yeah, thank yeah, yeah thank you. I'm probably going to put all of this in. It's all good stuff. No, I wouldn't. It's all good <laughs> stuff. It's all good stuff. Um, yes. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you so much, Paul. That was really, really good. Yeah. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's really nice to be able to sit here and hold forth and pontificate. <laughs> thanks for listening. And thanks to Kerry Sheldrick for getting us started, Tash Wilcox for the artwork, and Barclay Bandon and Grim Grim for the music. And of course, thanks to Paul Bassett Davies for being such excellent company.